Okay, friends and colleagues, um, as we're admitting the last several people from the waiting room, um, let me just uh, begin uh, by welcoming you virtually to the Institute for the Arts and Humanities, the best place on UNC's campus um, and the place that we try to um, promote, support, and deploy the art artistic and humanistic scholarship, inquiry, and, and big ideas. Um, and we're trying hard, even during the COVID pandemic, to keep those conversations going, uh, to support our community, and to make sure that um, we uh, honor, recognize, and promote the value of humanistic and artistic inquiry, um, not only even, but especially uh, in times like these. And so uh, I'm just thrilled to be able to welcome you to um, this week's Zoom, uh, IH Zoom talk. Um, and I, I could not be more excited uh, for the event today. Um, before we get started, just a couple of ground rules before I introduce myself as well. Um, please leave your microphone muted unless and until you're asking a question or making a comment during the conversation. Um, if you're able, please, however, leave your video on. We like the, the kind of community conversation feel that the video provides, so if you're able to do that, please leave it on to approximate that as much as possible. Um, please don't interrupt or disrupt the talk or the conversation. Um, if you do, uh, one of our wonderful staff members will disconnect you from the call and you won't be able to, to rejoin. Um, I want to start by thanking um, our fantastic IAH staff, uh, particularly Ebony Johnson, our, our events coordinator, Sofia Ramos, uh, our communications director, uh, and Ava Lane, who have done extraordinary work to make this event possible today. Um, and I want to thank Florence Dorr as well for her work in making sure that this can happen. So I'm so excited to introduce today's conversation. Let me start briefly by introducing myself. My name is Andrew Perrin. I'm a, a sociology professor here at Carolina. I work in social and critical theory, as well as in the sociology of democracy. And I am the director of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities, uh, again, the best place on Carolina's campus. We're thrilled to welcome today Professor Judith Butler. By any measure, an intellectual superstar, the Maxine Elliott Professor of Comparative Literature at the University of California at Berkeley. She is honestly among the most consistently interesting, edgy, provocative, and truly exciting critical theorists working today. And it's particularly telling, I think, that the fact that she, in fact, uh, redefined the study of gen gender for generations is only one of many crucial contributions to uh, questions in critical theory, philosophy, uh, political theory, and political analysis. Beginning the conversation today will be Florence Dorr, Professor of English and Comparative Literature here at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, a fellow, a valued fellow of the IAH and a scholar of the novel, of critical theory, and of rock and roll and also a recording artist. She's working on a record during quarantine, which will be released in about a year in May of 2021. Professor Dorr will start the conversation. I'll jump in at some point with the conversation, and then we'll open the floor for questions and comments and so on um, following that. Once we're in that conversation period, please indicate that you'd like to make a, a comment or ask a question by sending it in the chat system, uh, and don't use the chat system for other things. Uh, and then uh, I or one of our staff will unmute you and let you um, into that conversation as well. 
we will be recording the interview and following editing, we'll be presenting it uh, on our website so you'll be able to, uh, to see what's been going on here in the conversation as well. Uh, with that, and no further ado, please let's get started uh, and I'll turn it over to Professor Dore. Well, thank you so much, Andy, and um, thank you everyone for being here. Um, Judith, as you know, it was your wonderful interview with the philosopher George Yancey and Truthout that inspired me to ask you here so that we could hear more from you and sort of amplify some of your messages. Um, so I want to say thank you very much to Andy and to the IAH for allowing us to, um, giving us a platform to do that. Um, I'd like to, uh, if I might, uh, kind of take up the thread of the conversation um, that you had with Professor Yancey where it left off uh, when you began speaking about the public humanities and how the humanities can contribute to thinking, as you put it, about a more reflective and just world. And so I have two questions, and I want to kind of ask us to bear in mind two things that you have said over your work in the last 10 years uh, as, we, as we listen to you answer these questions. Actually, I think these are both topics from your book from 2002, I'm sorry, 2004, Precarious Life, The Powers of Mourning and Violence. Um, the first thing I want us to keep in our mind is just the pithy quote that you make, uh, let's face it, we're undone by each other, and if we're not, we're missing something. So I'd like us to think about that. And then I also want us to think about the implications of that for grief as I ask these questions, because for those of you who haven't read this book, um, and I'm paraphrasing Professor Butler, she can cor certainly correct me if I get something wrong here. Um, but I think what you're arguing is that we need grief. Um, grief can show us through the experience of loss, our own vulnerability and kind of essential disposition. Um, for you, I think grief can clarify through this disarray, the disarray to which grief subjects us, that we are not fully autonomous and that we have, as you call it, an ethical obligation to take stock of our interdependence. Um, for you, thus, grief can allow for a new politics, a way to conceive of community not only as nonviolent, but as um, caring. So the two questions I, I wanna ask you about are the opening of colleges and universities uh, would be the first one. And the, the second question will be the role of the humanities in making this new path towards a more just and reflective society. I thought that we might consider that in relation to, as I mentioned to you earlier, Flannery O'Connor's story, The Displaced Person. Um, I think that story is about some of the things that opening college and, colleges and universities um, is about and that we might learn something from the story and thus gain some insight into how the humanities might help us um, in a pandemic moment. Okay, so first, Judith, and I'll, I'll, um, I'll stop talking soon because I know people want to hear you. Opening colleges and universities is at the top of a lot of people's minds um, in this moment. Here at University of North Carolina, as this meeting started, the chancellor um, started his meeting addressing the campus community on how we should have face-to-face -face, uh, classes. And here and elsewhere, faculty have been thrown into a chaotic conversation in which we have been asked to put the value of human life aside 
in conversations about pedagogy and social distancing. It's extraordinary and it's causing a lot of despair. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the insistence heard by, from the president of Brown University and others that we must open universities so that universities may continue to make and generate revenue and so that they may continue to be an engine of class mobility. Could you talk about opening universities in relation to your, your wonderful ideas? Great, well, thank you, Professor Dorr. It's great to be in conversation with you uh, once again, and uh, also to be part of a conversation, an ongoing conversation, I would presume, at UNC right now. Um, I, I think uh, that um, the conversations we're having about universities are slightly different, whether we are in Ivy League and uh, universities with, with large endowments or whether we are in state universities that are poorly funded or indeed whether we're at small colleges that depend fundamentally on tuition in order to stay alive. Um, and I suppose, uh, oh, well, we can get right to it. Um, I mean, there are many things to say about grief and many things to say about our bonds with one another, but maybe we will return to that. Um, what worries me is um, the way that a certain kind of cost-benefit framework has been used and uh, presupposed uh, to be the appropriate framework for thinking about whether or not to reopen the university. I, I see, I read, I hear people claiming, well, look, the numbers are down or the numbers will stay the same. And, and when they talk about the numbers, they're obviously talking about the number of deaths. So uh, university communities are very complex. They include people who are young and people who are uh, much older. They include people with pre-existing medical conditions and those who understand themselves to be um, uh, fully healthy. The fact of the matter is that the coronavirus does disproportionately take the life of people with pre-existing medical conditions um, and those who are 60, 65 and older uh, whose immune systems have uh, more trouble fighting the virus. And when we look more closely on at who has a pre-existing condition, I mean, what is a pre-existing condition? It could be a health, it could be a lung condition, it could be a heart condition. Well, pre-existing conditions are to some degree socially produced <laughs> uh, when people do not have adequate health care for a long period of time. So who is it then that has been deprived of adequate health care and developed pre-existing conditions? Uh, who, who is it that um, uh, does not have health insurance? We are talking about the poor and we are also talking about black and brown communities disproportionately. And we have seen those statistics. So when we're talking about the numbers, whose, whose lives are most at risk, whose lives are most vulnerable to this virus, um, 
we are talking about those who have been systematically excluded from decent health care or who have been discriminated against by health care systems or who have not been able to afford health care in a system in a country that does not understand health care as a basic human right, as Bernie Sanders put it, um, or as a public obligation of governments to provide as the social welfare states of Europe have uh, to a large degree um, uh, 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 accepted as a, a basic obligation of government. So, um, so we're talking about returning to campus, who returns and who does not, and who survives the return and who does not survive the return. For somebody with a lung disease or someone with a heart problem who is asked to return to campus, they are also asked to jeopardize their life. Now, if from the cost benefit perspective, an administration says, yes, it will be a hardship for some, they will stay home or they will have uh, a different kind of provision made, um, that's actually very short-sighted because if we open up universities and if we open up public gatherings and all sorts of places where people mingle in proximity, then the virus does spread more readily and those people are at risk. If we're saying that those people who have pre-existing medical conditions or no health care or who are, um, who are uh, age, aged, I guess, like me, I, I mean, I've never understood myself as belonging to the aged as much as I do under contemporary circumstances, but it is me, uh, um, uh, that they should stay home or not be part of the community. What have we done to our community? The, the healthy, the young, those who are supposed to have the immunity to uh, survive the illness yeah. are welcome. Those who are not are not welcome. What have we done to our community? What kind of inequalities have we accepted as a matter of fact yeah. and reproduced as a matter of effect? So these are these are very profound questions. I think that implicit in the calculations that people make the administrators and the government, oh, we can open the numbers are like this, you know, only losing 1300, only losing 13,000. That's acceptable. What they're saying is that certain lives can die, certain lives will die. Sorry. But this is the price we pay for keeping the economy open, at which point we see that the health of the economy is prized above the health of actually existing humans. And the the sacrificed humans become the dispensable population. Yep. <laughs> it's miserable. Um, and it is the logic that we are seeing. And so I really appreciated when I asked you uh, in my conversation with the administrators and what you're saying now, I think it's important to keep uh, the question at the forefront. How many lives are you calculating that it's acceptable to lose here? Because if we don't, I think that we are denying uh, as you, you know, putting put it in some of your work over the last ten years, we're sort of denying the grief, right? We're pretending that the vulnerability uh, is appended to a certain group of people, and and thus kind of pretending that we're autonomous and not interconnected. Is that a fair? I guess the way I would put it, um, 
and and yes, I, I, I think that's right. But the way I would put it is this way. The loss of a certain group of people is not considered to be a real loss, or maybe it is a loss, but it's an acceptable loss, or maybe it is derealized, that is to say, treated as a number uh, in a calculation, at which point we're not thinking about those lives as connected with other lives, lives which, if lost, would be grieved and would be a massive loss for the people and communities to whom they are connected. So they're right. considered un ungrievable, not worthy of grief. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, that's the, the, deep, the deep injury, the deep insult, the deep denial of the value of existence that I think is, is going on in those calculations. Yeah, it's really mind boggling. Lawrence, may I, may I um, jump Please. in with a, a follow-up on this? Because it's what a great way to start this conversation. I guess I have two questions to problematize a bit. The first question is this. We believe, I think correctly, that our work is urgent uh, and not optional, right? That the, that the critique and intellectual um, consideration um, of the human uh, can't be put off until um, you know, until the, the economic and medical problems are solved um, because they are part and parcel of the same. And so I, I am concerned by um, the sense that do, 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 we, do we broadcast that the work of the university is optional by broadcasting that it can wait. And the other, the other question is somewhat more pragmatic than that. Your campus like ours uh, is proud to host many low-income and first-generation students, many students whose home situations are not comfortable or easy, even, you know, uh, arguably increase suffering through their inaccessibility to campus and certainly decrease their capacity to learn. Um, and so I wonder if those constitute you know, uh, aside from the polluted question of the finances of campus, if either of those constitutes a sufficiently important problematic uh, to this discussion. Yeah, um, thank you. That's an important point. First of all, our work is urgent. It is essential. It's never been more urgent or essential. Um, the question of what value do we accord to human life and why is it that some human lives are accorded more value than others? is not just a question for demographers or economists. It's a, it's a question for the humanities and for social theory and for critical thought more broadly. We, we have to be able to not just grasp that there is social inequality, but we have to understand how it works through what means and how it sometimes conceals itself in mm -hmm. forms of reasoning that we take to be matter of fact. You know, when Trump was asked, um, well, will everybody get access to drugs that would um, uh, ameliorate uh, the effects of the disease? Or will everyone get access to a vaccine once it's developed? He said, well, you know, it's true that wealthier countries and wealthier people will, I'm paraphrasing, will uh, have more access. That's the way things are. That's the way life goes. I'm sorry, that part I know I'm quoting. That's the way life goes. So that's the way life goes is, is, is what we would call uh, the naturalization of a 
of a very peculiar social reality that actually should be questioned. <laughs> but when we repeat it enough, like that's just the way it is, you know? That's just, you know, men treat women that way or minorities suffer. Yep, that's how it is. The minute we, we do the yes, that's how it is, we make it seem like it's a natural feature of our environment. And it's not. So, um, so Can I just throw in here that one of the questions that we were asked to describe what, what are, I didn't even, I can't even replicate the question because it had nothing to do with death, right? The question of what our pedagogy, what better, how would our pedagogy look with social distancing in the fall? Sort yeah. of as a way of gathering information. And it took me like two days of going, wait, there's so many assumptions buried in that. And as you say, that's a question for critical inquiry. Yeah. Well, one question is what would, ped you might reframe the question, what would pedagogy look like if we're socially distancing and we know that the consequences of our action are injurious to others? What do we do with that consciousness? Do we dissociate from that consciousness? Do we accept that there's that we're in a critical pedagogy scene, we're reading Ulysses, we're having a great time face to face, and there's a kind of ambient death around us, but we're, we're bracketing that out in order to do what we're doing. Now, you know, there may be situations where face to face can happen at social distancing. I'm not trying to say that that's totally impossible to think about to experiment with. But, but what I what I do want to say is, uh, universities can function online. It yep. is not as good. It is nowhere near as good. We lament the contact. We lament the, the close contact with students, the ability to follow up on a conversation in a more easy way. The group dynamics are very different on Zoom than they ever could be in the classroom. There's a huge loss and we mourn that loss. I, I mourn it. I, I feel kind of this this strange isolation the groups i speak with are all they're they're flat phenomenon what does it mean that they're not three-dimensional to me <laughs> and that we don't share a common space or have that casual or connected human exchange it is a massive loss um and it's also true that online education is worth less so can universities expect the same tuition? Probably not. So there are some losses that are absolutely clear, but the university doesn't stop if it's online. And, and the humanities doesn't stop if it's online. If anything, and this might be a response to Professor Perrin, if anything, um, I have seen more uh, writing, reflection, criticism, uh, on the web uh, than I ever have before. There's a, there are different modes of collective reflection. Academic work is put into play in different ways. Donna Haraway has written an excellent blog piece. So has Bruno Latour. So has Alain Badiou. So has Naomi Klein. These are everywhere being circulated. They are both to some degree academic and to some degree public. Yeah. And it's actually the pandemic, I'm not going to be say that the pandemic is producing beautiful consequences. I don't believe that is true. But the pandemic has given us a condition for seeing a kind of thought 
that is academically informed, but directed towards a public and informed by a public and practiced by a public. So why wouldn't we, we don't need to be, we don't need to be concealed within our walls to do academic work. We can do it through different media. Um, and, and, you know, this, this challenge of working in new media in across media uh, has been there for academic life, for English departments, for sociology departments for some time, and we are taking it up. It is not perfect. There are great losses, but it's certainly not the end of the humanities or indeed of academic public critical thought. I think, if anything, it's, it's thriving in new modes. Now, shall I ask my second question to the follow-up? Yeah, yeah, I would love to talk to you, Judith, about the Professor Butler about the about the the end of the s uh, the end of the interview with professor yancey in which you say uh, a version of what you've just said here which is that the world cannot be reduced to the economy or the nation and neither is it fully defined by the pandemic a sense of the world can wax and wane as ludwig wittgenstein once said whose task is world making uh, in the face of radical disorientation and loss um, so I wanted to just sort of ask you a little bit about that world making. You said, again, this is the last part of the um, of the interview that I think that Professor Perrin posted um, in the invitation to this talk. You said the rush to Netflix in the midst of ambient death could be understood as self-anesthetizing practice, deflecting from reality, but maybe we are drawn to the question of who draws and redraws the world. I actually think this gets at what you're saying about framing and the naturalization that, that the humanities can help us to undo. Um, and that that's one of the ways in which the humanities is important. I told you I'd love to talk briefly about Flannery O'Connor's story, The Displaced Person. One of the other things that the pandemic has done is to just change the way that everything looks, right? The first half of my American literature course and the second half we're not the same course, right? Everything looks different now. And this story seems very much, for those of you who haven't read it, it's about itinerant white workers who are traumatized by the image of bodies in the Holocaust, right? That they see on a newsreel. So they see it, they see this image of bodies in uh, Belson and Buchenwald, they're immediately traumatized and a voice comes on to the newsreel saying, hollow, in a hollow voice, time marches on. So it's this rationalization. The story is about the principle of rationalization and how death comes into it. And the characters are traumatized and their trauma immediately turns into fear, which immediately turns into xenophobia, which ultimately leads to them becoming um, like Nazis and becoming complicit in the murder of um, an immigrant, a vulnerable person who comes over from Poland um, to, to the US South and takes up work on this farm. So, so one of the things that I think O'Connor's talking about is the, the way that the media shrinks the world. It's like post-war world, right? Um, but she gives this other image of the way in which the world is shrunk, uh, where she has this itinerant worker staring at the tail of a peacock. And I'll just read this brief passage and we could talk about it. Then she stood a while longer, reflecting her unseeing eyes directly in front of the peacock's tail. He had jumped into the tree and his tail hung in front of her, 
full of fierce planets with eyes that were each ringed in green and set against a sun that was gold in one second's light and salmon colored in the next. She might have been looking at the map, at a map of the universe, but she didn't notice it any more than she did the spots of sky that cracked the dull green of the tree. So when we talked about it post pandemic, those fierce planets in the peacock's tail suddenly looked like a reframing of the small world that was produced by that image of the bodies, right? It's like, okay, it's a small world. A character remarks that in the story, it's a small world. But here, it's, it's not just the depiction of another more beautiful small world. It's the performance of what the narrative can do in reframing, right? It's the redrawing of the world in a kind of beautiful aesthetic domain that is not, um, that is not entailed in the rationality that, that, that produces murder. Mm -hmm. So that's just was my reflection on, on thinking about how redrawing the world could be considered as important uh, in the pandemic. And I just wanted to know if you could talk more about what you were thinking when you said that. Well, it's, it's, it's beautiful, thank you. I mean, I'll, I'll say two things about it. First of all, I have a, a close friend who lives in uh, Brooklyn, New York, near one of the epicenters of the pandemic, and it's very My hard. sister. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very hard to go for a walk. I mean, one can walk. Uh, one is permitted to walk. One is actually encouraged to walk, exercise a little, get outside, but um, the walk is is a rough walk. One walks past the cemetery, one walks past a house where one knows someone has died and and one walks towards the local park. And then upon arriving at the park, she tells me that there is this strange experience she has of seeing the, the spring uh, change the trees, the the eight million versions of green <laughs> and that she realizes that sentience, the ability to sense color, which she has, uh, she's cited, is a, an extraordinary gift in the middle of devastation. Uh, and, um, and that there is oddly uh, beauty that breaks forth into this a miserable condition. It takes that form, but it also takes the form of people reaching out to one another or perfect strangers offering blood plasm to, a, to another or perfect strangers um, giving each other rights. I mean, there is, um, there, there are moments of enormous solicitude, I would say, and, and grace, but also to pick up on the um, Flannery O'Connor's story, I think that the the world gets reconstellated. It becomes a different constellation, right? We see these maps like, oh, this is where it has spread, or this is how the virus spread. It was this way, that way. And you realize there are all these traveling people, right? It's the traveling class, <laughs> guilty, uh, the traveling class that really kind of made it move very quickly among many places in this world. But those, even though those are high bourgeois forms <laughs> of interconnectedness, travel, there are other forms of connectedness. The, 
the pub, the sports gathering, the the family meeting, the the places the places where people go to have contact and to connect with one another. And here this virus emerges in the middle of interconnectedness. At the same time, the condition of the pandemic makes us rethink that interconnectedness. What's happening to someone in Italy or in China or uh, in South Africa is also happening here, that the symptoms are the same. There's a, an interconnected humanity that starts to reconstellate on the basis of this pandemic and ways of communicating across those national divisions that allow us to think of ourselves globally um, uh, as interconnected um, in, in ways that, that the idea of the nation cannot, in the, in the way that, that the idea of the national economy cannot. Um, so, uh, and, and this, you know, we, we, need, we need images for that interdependency. I can, I can give you the concept of interdependency as an abstraction, but what does it actually look like? Well, you know, when the German researchers wake up in the morning and they connect with their Beijing counterparts, and the translators are all in there and they're doing their conversation. You know, there's something pretty amazingly cross-national about that conversation. And note that the translators are key. Translation is key. Moving between languages, understanding medical, social, epidemiological, economic languages, all of these things, but also the human character of the disease and the social justice aspects, right? I mean, uh, there was, you know, there's a there's a debate. Do do should the vaccine be produced by private corporations that have that have pledged to give to the United States the vaccine first? Uh, one German corporation sought to do that, and then it was stopped by its own board of trustees and its. CEO was removed and now they're coming out saying, you know what, if we come up with a vaccine, those in the world who are most in need will get it first and there will be no national criteria for how it is distributed. Yes. Okay, so those but those fights are happening. What are they imagining their world to be? There is there is an imagining of the interconnected world there. Um, and there and and there is not just the possibility of social justice, but but through the imagining, through the redrawing of the world, a way of um, a, a way of thinking about our 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 ob living obligations to one another, our living connections to one another that go beyond linguistic, regional, and national boundary, um, and 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 that is that's a that's a form of beauty, I would say, that that is a practice that redraws the contours of the world. I mean, this actually goes to something that you said in your interview as well about STEM and the kind of overemphasis on STEM, which we're kind of seeing come to quite a brutal head right now because, you know, artists who don't follow under the STEM kind of norm are without work. Their world is collapsing, you know, and so, I mean, what you're suggesting there is that there isn't really um, that we shouldn't insist on a distinction between different versions of beauty, really. STEM and, you know, sort of math versions of abstraction and beauty or, or 
maps that are drawn by epidemiological kind of communal sharing or some beautiful peacock tail. I mean, I don't know. If you could talk about STEM and how it's led us to this place, the emphasis on STEM. Yeah, well, STEM is, uh, STEM is hard because um, so many universities do believe um, that that the that the the STEM fields are are the most valuable, and when you ask what makes them most valuable, you find out that they they solicit corporate contracts or government contracts that they have a certain kind of usefulness or application in the world, and sometimes that is true. So let us allow that to be true. That can be true at the same time that we can ask. Um, what is the what is the value of the value <laughs> to stem in, in other words we decided that was valuable because profit usefulness applicability in a certain framework are there other frameworks that have been occluded by that idea of value have we ceased to value performance arts humanities language literature critical thought, social and political theory, um, have, have these things which open up the world in a new way, which provide another lens through which we see the world and each other that actually allows us to think about the problem of value in a different way. Have they been foreclosed too quickly? We can't even um, debate the value of STEM without first asking how has the notion of value been determined by STEM or by those who see the profit or uh, instrumental value of STEM. Uh, are all values instrumental? Uh, are all values profitable? Is, do we really want to gauge human activity or human creativity or thought in terms of profit and use in these narrow senses? How did it come to be historically that profit and utility uh, were established as the only norms worth thinking about. I mean, there are, there are other norms too, like national national pride or national self determination or you know nationalism that that uh, certainly pervades government funding um, in area studies and humanities and and in the STEM fields itself. Will this bring value to? Uh, the United States. So we we have to we have to become vigilant in uh, in asserting the the values of what we do. And within the context of the pandemic, and let's remember this pandemic is superimposed upon and intersecting with the 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 massive challenge of climate change, right? And the massive challenges of social and economic inequality that have only intensified in yeah. the last decades, right? So we need a constellation that's big enough so that we see whose work is valued and whose work is not. Yeah. Uh, what kind of thought is valued? What kind of thought is not? And 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 we are the ones who can draw those maps. <laughs> we are we are the ones who can think about those interconnections. Mm -hmm. Most of our colleagues work within fields that uh, that seek to apply internal norms to what they do. And our job is in some ways to think about the 
the interconnectedness of these different kinds of activities and to remind ourselves and the world of the value of creative restagings, of creative redrawings of the world that allow us to see the interconnections, to object to the injustices, and to affirm a set of values that otherwise would be denied to us. Can I follow up on that one too? Sorry to keep jumping in. But uh, so much of, of real science, not caricature science, but real science is about uncertainty. And we see so much uncertainty surrounding it in this case as well, that that strikes me as interfering with the kind of um, STEM celebration that, you know, or hopefully interfering with that kind of celebration as you were discussing before. And I'm struck as well that the images that we are given to understand this phenomenon are artistic renderings of, of a virus that no one can see, you know, or, or, or a meaningless blob of, of, uh, of DNA sort of um, dissected in order to be, you know, in some way represented in a way that we don't, that, that really conceives um, uncertainty and makes it more fixed than we really ought to. And I was thinking about this in part in, in the context of, of being physically here in North Carolina, where the numbers you were talking about are, are not high. Um, and so we're, I was thinking about sort of like Boltanski's work on la souffrance à, di à distance, right? The, the distant suffering is how some portions of the world experience this, this phenomenon. And so it's refracted through these kinds of, um, of abstracted images as opposed to the, the kinds of um, grounded questions of death and suffering that you were talking about early on? Well, first of all, it is, I mean, philosophers of science and people in the field of science studies have always known that there are huge conflicts among scientists about which paradigm is the appropriate one for research. And we are even seeing now, I mean, there are, I think, nearly a hundred different vaccine projects and if you go deep into their literature, as I've tried to do to become, you know, minimally literate, you see that they are very rough with one another. Like, that's a terrible methodology. That's not a grounded assumption. This is bunk. This is speculative. They are rough with each other. They're hardly operating under the exact same paradigm. Uh, even, you know, what a vaccine is and should do, what it should target. Uh, what the basic presupposition is about what what this vaccine should include or not include. These are massive arguments and they are, they're mean with one another, right? And there's obviously a competition and a market competition to some degree that is driving that, that, that meanness and that, that conflict. But there's also an epistemological uncertainty that, that people who are doing research in new territory like this and even old territory are used to methodology. What's your methodology? That's a debunked methodology. So, but I also think um, that, you know, scientific research has to make itself readable to the public, to governments, to funders, um, to the media. They're, they're, we're already talking about a translation. Who does science writing? The science writer is an extremely important person right now. They, they actually try to take that information and put it into other language. They don't just heave technical language in your direction and hope that you can pick something up. They sort it, they narrate it, 
they also tell the story uh, of, of how people got together, what they said. There's a sociological dimension. There's a narrative dimension. In other words, those scientific, the, the public explanation and dissemination of public knowledge depends on narrative. Who knows about narrative? Depends, <laughs> depends on sociology. Who knows about sociology? Dep de depends on communication media. Oh, we have media people, right? And, and, and illustration, visual, visual imagery. And sometimes that visual imagery is traumatic. Sometimes it's like, oh, here's this little spiky blue thing that might be in my lung, right? You look at that image and you think, is that what I'm living? Is that what I could live? Is this what someone else lived when they got the virus? Was it that exact thing? Or is that an analogy for me? And, and, and there is a visceral and, um, and sometimes traumatic relation to that kind of imagery because you are asked to imagine that that is the thing that is entering you without your knowing or that you're passing on without your knowing. Um, so, you know, a virus uh, is especially difficult because we never, it is invisible. So the representation of it is always to some degree a conjecture, a hypothesis. It is uh, a representation at a distance from the phenomenon. By making it visible, we deny the invisibility of the phenomenon. So we've already um, accepted that whatever the representation is, it is untrue, right? And yet it is an untruth that we need in order to grasp it. Okay, when we talk about untruths that we need in order to grasp the world, we're talking about fiction. Fiction is not a lie. It's, a, it's an untruth that actually can sometimes give us the truth of the world. And, and sometimes that's the only prism through which the truth of the world arrives for us. And I would say those, those, those images sort of make the case for fiction in an odd way. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they contain the structure of fiction. Um, and, 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 and it's important that that image doesn't stand alone as the, the meaning of the virus, right? We actually need to narrate that image. We need to put it in relationship with other images. We need to reconstellate our understanding of all the ways this virus is infecting and affecting us in order to grasp the social, biological, uh, 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 imaginary life of this, uh, of this virus. Lawrence, would you be okay to, to open it up to conversation at this point? I sure would. Great. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about and we've got a couple of great questions already in the chat. So um, what I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, begin uh, by asking uh, Manu Sharma, inviting that person to, uh, to ask their question. And then um, uh, as you like folks, when you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, please go ahead and, and let us know in the chat and We'll do our best to get as many people in as possible. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. yes. Yeah, hi. Uh, so my question is, it's just, uh, uh, I've been thinking about the strange experiences that I've been um, opened up to as a result of this uh, sort of a rupture. So there's, I tend to see it as, so when, when something breaks down, it, it shifts your gaze to the thing. So if I'm using a pen and it breaks down is when I'm actually going to look at the pen and see how it works and learn more about how it really functions, right? 
So um, I, I, and academically, I've been thinking about how it's this structure has opened me up to reading groups. It's opened me up to these talks. I would have never ever imagined actually being uh, here and asking this question before, right? And so how do we think about, so I, I know that all of us um, who are studying are in a rush to return to that safe space, which is the university, but it's also a very large number of students who may not have accessed those spaces before and are able to now. But as I see it happening, I also see that when things return to normal, all of these university spaces will collapse back into themselves and will not just collapse back into themselves, there would be more rigid borders. Uh, there would be more difficulties of movement from these uh, places where uh, where diversity could could be um, could could be could be learned from, where students could travel from these countries to these universities to access the kind of training they need. So I'm just thinking about knowledge and university and critical thinking. And I'm just I'm I'm, I'm thinking about how the, these inequalities are not new, but the rupture opens up uh, opens us up to being able to locate these inequalities that already existed and then how do we sort of uh, move from here once all of these inequalities have been exposed because it's not the first time um, we see that um, these inequalities are manifesting uh, in in certain ways but they've already existed but they've become more prominent and they could become more and more rigid as a result of this uh, crisis so wanted to know more about that um, well thank you for your question I really appreciate it and I very much like your map uh, mm -hmm. over your right shoulder it seems yes. like that's an important reminder of what the world looks like uh, if we are <laughs> to change the framework so so thank you for that I think it is true that um, uh, I mean even the question of whether a student has a workable computer at home and has a home that has a separate space where a student can easily connect and participate in a in an online class this this is a huge question, and it is amazing how many universities just assume that a, that a student has a home to go back to. Some parents rent out the room <laughs> or has, has a, 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 a separate room. Most of the graduate students in my department do not have separate rooms. They share rooms. Has, has a shelter. How many students are, are homeless or who are transient, move from shelter to shelter? Um, and, and who has um, computer access? Now, one of the things, I'm, I'm just going to say this going back to Professor Parent's question, and then I'll come back um, to your important question. It seems to me that universities are empty right now. There are all these offices. Students without proper, don't have a room and don't have a computer, they should be in those offices. They can have, each one can have an office. There's so many empty offices with functioning computers on campus. I don't see why professorial offices can't be open to students who don't have proper great idea right I mean this is just a bad use of resources here's the need here's the resource connect them so that's that's one view I have the other thing is this that some people do believe that the inequality of access and the inaffordability of universities that this will only be made worse by the pandemic but, and others think, no, we will now 
move in a utopian direction and develop larger networks of care and will become more mindful about inequalities and will restructure our institutions in order to redress those inequalities and preempt their intensification. I think we don't know. Um, I think that this is going to be a political struggle and that it could go either way. It could be in the middle, but this is, we, we can't, we can't just predict from a, a, a spectatorial position. <laughs> we have to be engaged in that struggle and, and insist on diversity and insist on equality and think about how um, university wealth could be internally redistributed, starting, I think, clearly with the salaries of administrators. There's an extraordinary article on the internal financial system of Johns Hopkins University that was published by the Chronicle of Higher Education. They bring in managers from corporations to run the university as if it is nothing other than it a corporation and has no independent academic mission that would affect the way in which its finances operate. And as a result, you have massively bloated salaries at the top, people making, you know, millions, a million, a million two or something like that, and enormously exploited graduate student workers and lecturers at the bottom who very often have inadequate or no health care. So those inequalities uh, have to be addressed. And the, the question of access to universities across the world is, is also important. I do see that in several places that the online education has actually allowed people a greater capacity to participate because they don't have to assume travel costs or they don't have to get through a checkpoint. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's also important to think about as we imagine the future, whether there wouldn't be a way of achieving equality by a combination of online and in-person uh, pedagogy, depending on, on where people are and what makes sense. Um, anyway, I think that's those are my at least preliminary remarks on that issue. I could talk about it at some length. If I could address, since we're talking in relation to Manu, that really interesting question about inequality and things that are now, that things look broken, sort of shining a new light on, for example, inequalities. There's just a, a massive movement in this country and it's taking place here as well to address graduate student stipends and the unbelievable extent to which they are exploited. In our campus, just in my department alone, a collection was taken up uh, by a junior faculty member of cash to distribute to graduate students who have lost their second jobs, which they have to take in order to pay their rent uh, in restaurants and bars. So I mean, it, what you're saying, Manu, makes it reminds me of thing theory, right? The, the sort of the idea in the a Bill Brown essay, right? That, that when things are occluded, when things are actually broken, we, we can pay attention in a new way. And that strikes me as really a, a very astute observation. And Jenny Kajowski had a question. Could we ask her? She's a former student of mine, Professor Butler. 
Hello, Professor Butler. Hello, Professor Dorr. It's so wonderful to see both of you. Um, Professor Butler, I've been following your work for many, many years. You've been so influential to me. Um, and now um, I currently work at the kind of the intersection of administration and instruction at NYU. And although I'm appalled at the idea of, you know, prioritizing revenue and profit over human lives, when it comes to making decisions to reopen in the fall, I kind of wonder how we can separate the two. Because in the conversations that I'm hearing, you know, the people who will be most endangered by decreased revenue will also be those will be those people who are deemed, you know, in your words, expendable by the university and who will again be disproportionately people of color, um, the graduate students who were just mentioned, adjunct labor, as well as staff and kind of lower level administrators. And so I, I love the idea of, you know, the redistribution of wealth. And I'm told that there are these kinds of conversations happening, but in lieu of, of that actually taking place, I just kind of wonder how, what, what options do we have when we, when we try to decide, you know, how best to approach the fall? Because as universities claim that they want to reopen in person, um, there's just so much alarm in, coming in from so many directions in terms of health, in terms of our job stability, in terms of so many things. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yes. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate what you're saying. You know, capitalism is a problem. <laughs> that seems to be one of, the, one of those broken things that we're looking at right now. <laughs> you know, here's, here's the paradox, and Marx actually put it really well in the early manuscripts. The, the worker wants to work because the worker needs a wage in order to secure subsistence for themselves and their dependents. Um, that was a rewrite. And then, uh, uh, but by working, the worker risks their health and actually becomes ill under conditions in which there is no protection for the worker's life. So by work, working, the worker dies or risks death or becomes broken or exhausted and then therefore becomes replaceable, at which point a new worker enters. And so when we say, here's the paradox, workers need to work, let's keep things open so that they can get their wage, but working under those conditions qualifies the worker as in the category of the most vulnerable to the virus, right? and so risks the health of the worker. Now, that's a contradiction, we might say, only under conditions in which income is not guaranteed. And I actually think that this is a moment to insist on um, a guaranteed annual income so that no one ever has to make that hideous choice again. That's a hideous choice. I have to work to live. If I work, I will die. No. We want to live in a world, let's reference the notion of the world, we want to live in a world in which nobody has to make that choice. And that's, that's an unrealistic proposition. But I am in favor of that form of unrealism. Now, NYU is, as we know, uh, a very substantial real, uh, 
owns substantial real estate in in New York City and has made enormous amounts of money uh, in New York City. And what I worry about is that the internal finances of NYU, which have been inspected by uh, a, a number of groups, um, are such that we see a radical inequality of wealth. What would happen if there was a redistribution strategy for NYU and all of its its workers were guaranteed some um, some amount of 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 regular income uh, for the duration of the pandemic? There are uh, a number of uh, businesses that have done that. There are a number of countries that have done that. Mm -hmm. um, so something is wrong with the entire economic system in which that is considered to be an unreasonable or utopian uh, solution. Um, let me uh, move next, and apologies if I get the name wrong, but to Ted Jr. Oosterfall. Um, thank can you hear me? Yes. Oh, it says I was muted. Um, hi, Professor Butler. Thank you for your talk. Um, so I was thinking about your article from 2002, uh, Is Kinship Always Already Heterosexual? And the particular part that interests me here is that uh, your quote that is, um, and if you've actually lost the lover who was never recognized um, to be your lover, then did you really lose that person? And I was connecting that to how uh, you describe grief in precarious lives as an affect uh, to connect our fundamental interdependence through precariousness and the specific ways precarity works to specific bodies and specific communities. And I wanted to hear you uh, reflect a bit on this in relation to the fact that many non-heterosexual modes of uh, living and cohabitating are globally not yet recognized in legal forms and cultural forms. Uh, and with the aggressive right-wing mobilization against so-called gender ideology, um, especially relating to the current situation in Hungary, yes. uh, the legal retraction of the rights of trans peoples. Uh, the situation is not looking particularly bright, but that's the case for everyone right now, of course. But uh, queers are, of course, used to living in crisis, and COVID-19, of course, connects directly to the losses of, uh, of the HIV and AIDS pandemic. Um, and I imagine your quote to be really relevant to us today. Um, and I wanted you to give any uh, to give any thoughts you might have on how uh, grief relates to queer communities and queer subjects and how we might think of that politically. And if you would like to, uh, if you could connect that to the ongoing debate uh, between Mackenzie Wark and Joby Dean and others on capitalism versus neo-feudalism. Thank you. Well, I certainly can speak to much of what you have said, and thank you for your question. It's enormously important. I haven't read the debates, uh, of the work dean debates, so you will just have to excuse my, my ignorance there. Um, we have to pick and choose what we read these days, and <laughs> we can't keep up with everything. Um, but. Um, uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked this question because it's something that I'm thinking about and I hope to write about it as well. Um, 
you know, the whole idea of sheltering in place or returning to the household also involves a fantasy about what the household is, right? Like, what's the household? So for some people, it's a single apartment. For some people, it's a public shelter. But the idea that it's somehow a, a, a family zone, heterosexual family, um, where women do work of a domestic sort, where men hang out on the porch trying to have a business meeting, you know, this this is a reconstellation or even a reconsolidation of uh, a certain notion of the heteronormative family. Uh, many of us live in kin, kin relations, kin networks, kin communities that um, that cross households that um, are not necessarily assembled in a single household that that are sometimes that sometimes involve marriage and sometimes do not or where marriage doesn't have a traditional meaning, it has a queer meaning, um, or we're in queer kinship communities where our distance from traditional family and even traditional marriage is part of what binds us together. Uh, and these are supportive communities and they always have been. The communities of care that we see now are in some, in some ways the resurgence of the communities of care we saw um, in the in the context of the AIDS crisis um, uh, uh, in the late 80s and 90s when people um, needed to provide support for one another because they had queer people who had been expelled from their family or disowned from their family. And they, they did produce uh, um, communities, very often communities of ex-lovers. Uh, I like to think of them as communities of ex-lovers and potential lovers. Um, but where, where, where love relations and sex relations and friendship and community were, were overlapping kinds of categories. They weren't sociologically distinct. They wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to study them as a proper sociologist unless you rearranged your fundamental categories of analysis. Um, and I see a lot of that happening in, um, in the UK, for instance. Uh, there are queer, queer communities that have set up a number of support systems for one another uh, that are really quite crucial. Uh, at, at the same time, it is true that um, Hungary has, Hungary and Poland both have disputed the legal status of trans, right? So people who claim to be trans or who have sought legal recognition of trans are being forced by the state to reoccupy a gender assignment that was never one that they accepted and never worked for them. And that is a form of violence. Um, it is also the case that in places like Panama and Peru, uh, as a way of handling social distancing, they said men could go out on, on staggered days and women go out on the other days. Um, and the police are out there deciding who's a man and who's a woman and arresting trans people who are going out on the day that that um, corresponds to their chosen gender assignment and being arrested as um, as faking it or as not being true. So, you know, the amplification of public health powers on the part of the state, although we do, I believe, need it clearly for the purposes of um, of uh, addressing the pandemic uh, have been exploited to uh, 
oppose uh, reproductive rights, to oppose trans rights, to, um, uh, to um, put women very often in situations, domestic situations where they are suffering domestic violence without recourse to community support. And, um, and, and they rely on social policies that systematically misdescribe or efface queer communities and kinship. So this is going to, this should be more of a struggle now. We are told that our oppression is secondary. It is not, <laughs> it is not. Uh, I think that uh, there needs to be a, a stronger concerted effort to, um, to have a, a kind of multi-directional um, uh, uh, critique of how health policy is, uh, is retrenching or re-entrenching uh, heteronormative kinship orders. Yeah. I think we have we have time for one more person. I'm going to um, ask um, Agrima Mishra uh, to join. Okay, uh, so first of all, I'm really thankful for the organizers and to you, ma'am, Professor Butler, that we are getting this wonderful opportunity. And then my question is, there have been various researches on how pandemics and epidemics are connected to deforestation and globalization. And we hear that this is just the starting of it all. Like there has been a tremendous growth in the number of epidemics and pandemics in the last three decades. Yet in most part of the world, the focus is on how we can get the economy back. And still there's no much heat paid to environmental causes and the way we can reduce the number of pandemics. So how can, how can the humanities and arts make the effort to shift the focus from economy, from saving economy to saving environment? Well, thank you very much uh, for that question. You know, obviously I don't have answers to all. <laughs> I don't have good answers to everything, but I will simply say this. <laughs> but you're, okay, sorry. <laughs> I'm doing my best here. Um, you're Judith Butler. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm very mindful of um, the fact that right now the deforestation that's happening in Brazil, for instance, is happening at the same time that the indigenous people of Brazil who live in that area and who live with, with and as that environment, right? Their relationship to that environment is, um, is, is part of who they are as a culture and it and their way of distinguishing the human and the natural world is very different um, than than what classical liberal political theory would would give us. That that this is happening at the same time that the pandemic is raging through Brazil because it has this uh, the head of um, a country who uh, has not only decided to outlaw reference to gender as part of the anti-gender ideology campaign, but who has denied the reality of uh, climate change, deforestation, and uh, the pandemic. So uh, we do see the interconnection, especially because the indigenous people in that area, in, in the Amazon especially, are are at risk of being wiped out, at which point it will be a genocidal effect of this pandemic by virtue of a failure of state policy. And that is the same failure that is allowing that entire area to be, um, to be uh, uh, leveled and destroyed for the purposes of 
offering up its natural resources for industry. So the critique, um, uh, the, the critique, the opposition to uh, climate destruction is of course coupled with the critique of capitalism, which not only intensifies inequality, but also systematically produces the expendable peoples of the world, um, the, the people who, who can be lost without ever being marked as lost or whose loss is no loss from the perspective of the state. So these are, these are bundled together in a, in a clear way. I think that there is more attention being paid, if I'm right, and I don't know if I'm right, to the critique of hyper-productivism, right? Like that, that industrial production has to be cut back, that uh, carbon emission has to be cut back. Some of us are living in worlds in which there, there's, there are suddenly birds that sing, or there's suddenly water that's clear, or there's air that is breathable. And there are whole generations that have never had breathable air. This is their first introduction to breathable air. Do we then take from this experience the lesson that we need to safeguard this world against its destruction by, uh, by hyperproductivism? Maybe you could call it globalization. I think it maybe it's the, it's, the, it's the operation of global capitalism that I think is as a, an uncontested good that also obviously needs to be called into question, not to make us all localists, but to produce a different sense of the world, not the one that globalization gives us, but the one that interdependency gives us when we understand interdependency as also committing us to the equality of lives and of the living conditions of the earth, right? What makes the earth inhabitable for all, not just all humans but for human for but for living processes and living creatures that's that's another lecture and i will be glad to come another day and lay that out <laughs> um, i'm very grateful to all of you for your attention and your willingness to um hear me you know i'm i'm trained in philosophy and literature and i'm not a social scientist but i i say things anyway uh, <laughs> um, but I, I appreciate your listening to me. I'm, I'm in some ways uh, an academic and in other ways just a lay person who's thinking out loud and, and you could be the same and you probably are the same. Thank you, Florence, for your interesting, engaging uh, discussion and invitation and thank you, Andrew Perrin, as well for hosting me. It's been, uh, it's been great. Well, this thank you so much, yeah. This has been a singular pleasure. Thank you, uh, uh, Judith Butler. Thank you, Florence Dorr, for helping to make this extraordinary conversation happen. Um, and a uh, wonderful thank you as well to the, the IEH staff, particularly Ebony Johnson, Sophia Ramos, and Ava Lane, who, uh, who really helped to make this work so well. Thank you so much to you guys. Uh, and as we always say here, to be continued. Uh, stay well and stay healthy, all. <laughs>